What does it matter who is to blame? My story is a love story, but only those tortured with love can understand what I mean. In the history of the world, how many crimes have been attributed to love? Martha Beck. Violent Vice contains graphic and explicit content, which may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Audie Griffith. And I'm John John. Hello. Hello. If you guys could do us a favor, hit that subscribe button, write a review, and leave us five stars. We'd really, really appreciate it. And what, pray tell, are we talking about today? That was quite the thrilling quote. Today, we are talking about couples crimes. Ooh, 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 ooh. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Ooh, am I going to be scared about this one? I don't know. Uh, maybe a little. I don't know. It's just, it's two couples that kind of went on serial killer streaks and all that good stuff. Oh, so it's not like them killing each other. It's them partnering up, like literal partners in crime stuff. Yeah. Ooh, okay. Okay. Yup, yup, yup. Hmm. And it's just going to be two different stories, but they are pretty darn good ones. Well, all right. I hope hope I retain most of this or I'd never meet these people if they're still alive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you didn't answer that question. I'm concerned now. We'll get to it. Uh-oh. All right. So let's just dig right into it. Ray was born on December 30th, 1914, just during the beginning of World War I. He and his parents, Jess and Laney, moved around the country, commonly during his childhood, until the Copeland family finally settled into the town of Ozark Hills, Arkansas. During their travels, Ray gained himself a younger sister and a younger brother. The Copelands soon became one of the many victims of the Great Depression, and Ray had to drop out of school during the fourth grade in order to help his family maintain their small farm. He appeared to have been a spoiled child, demanding things frequently that would shortly be delivered to him. At the age of 20, he committed his first crime, stealing two hogs from Jess and selling them in another town, though his father found out no formal charges were ever filed. Jess Jess was his mom. Ray continued to commit more crimes in the following years, usually stealing livestock, but he started turning to crimes more serious in nature, once being arrested in 1936 for forging government checks in Harrison, Arkansas, for which he was sentenced to one year in county jail. In the spring of 1940, Ray made a routine visit to a physician's office, where he met a then-19-year-old Faye Della Wilson. Faye was born on August 4, 1921, to Rufus and Gladys Wilson, a hard-working couple from Harrison, who, despite having little money, were able to raise seven children in a dirt floor cabin. She and Ray started dating, and in six months, they were formally married. Within a year, they had their first child, a boy they called Everett. Following Everett, two years later, was another son, 
Billy Ray. And in 1944, Ray decided to move his family to Fresno County, California, where he and Faye had their only girl, Betty Lou, the following year. Another two years later, they had their third son, Elvia, and yet another two years after that, following Elvia, was William Wayne. So, just a huge family. That, that sounds pretty big. Yep. Especially for hard times. Yep. Plus they moved. Yep. Mm. But, mm. like, I mean, back then when you had a farm or worked on a farm, having kids mm. was a way to, you know, have extra hands to help out. Lighten the load. I like that. Okay. Hmm. On the same year that William was born, Ray was accused of stealing horses from a local farmer. And while no charges were ever filed, his established reputation in Fresno County was left damaged and Ray had to move the family back to Arkansas. Less than a month after their relocation, Ray was arrested once again for theft of cattle. He was found guilty of grand larceny and sentenced to one year in jail. After completing his sentence, Ray moved his family to Rocky Comfort, Missouri, where he was then arrested for cattle theft yet again. This time, he was sentenced to help in manual labor at the judge's farm. Starting in 1953, Ray began following the same pattern as his parents did in his childhood, moving his family around from town to town. And during these travels, he was arrested at least five more times for writing forged checks. During the summer of 1966, the Copeland family returned to Missouri, where Ray and Faye successfully purchased a small farm with 40 acres of land in Mooresville. Faye then soon took a job at the local glove-making company, and Ray proved unpopular with the neighbors, who viewed him as a bitter elderly man and suspected he had physically abused his family. Faye and the Copeland children would later deny these allegations, and wanting to gain money, and yet knowing that another arrest or forgery would send him to prison for a long amount of time due to his lengthy arrest record, Ray formulated a scheme to scam people purchasing cattle and then getting away with it. His plan was to show up at cattle auctions, catering to hitchhikers and drifters, and have a man purchase cattle from writing out a check from Ray's book, sign the check, and then sell the cattle before the check could bounce. He then would claim innocence to the authorities, who would eventually come and investigate and allege that the signatures on the checks were then forged. So, basically, he would have hitchhikers write checks from his own checkbook to buy these cattle, which then Ray would then sell later and just say that the checks that he wrote were forged once the checks bounced. So, I'm trying to figure out, it's like, it's not insurance fraud... But cattle fraud. But the cattle were real. Yes, but the money was not. Oh, okay. So you essentially get these cattle for free and then resell them. Yep, and make money from selling them. It's that's kind of clever. Yeah. Not good, but clever. No, and so since the many purchased the cattle were hitchhikers and drifters they would have already skipped town and continued their travels giving them liability to forgery 
While the scheme was completely unoriginal, Ray was able to get away with the scheme dozens of times until one of Ray's scam victims, Gerald Perkins, was interrogated by police and he exposed Ray's scheme. Ray was soon arrested and sentenced to almost two years in jail for check forgery. When he was released from prison, Ray tweaked his scam just a little bit. Instead of having his scam victims write the checks from his account, they would be told to get a post office box and open up their own account to their name, then have them write the checks from their accounts at the cattle auctions. His explanation for this to the scam victims were that the auctioneers disliked him for one reason or another. They would not give him a fair shake, so like a fair price for the cattle. After the transaction, Ray would then shoot the men with his Marlin twenty two and bury the bodies on his farm. And Mrs. Copeland would use scraps of the victims' clothing to make a quilt kind of as a trophy. So, he killed people that were selling the cattle originally, or was it the hitchhiker peoples? He would kill the hitchhikers that would write the checks for the cattle that Ray would then collect. Oh, so they couldn't ever be found and thus connect back to... Him. Okay. Okay. Yep. Hmm. So, Ray's scheme to work with a couple claiming 5 to 12 victims. During their crimes, they employed a 57-year-old named Jack McCormick, who soon caught on to their illegal activities. When Ray sensed that McCormick's had suspicions, he attempted to kill him, but McCormick was able to flee. Jack McCormick then called Crime Stoppers Hotline in August 1989 anonymously to tell them about the Copelands. McCormick claimed that he had seen human bones on their farm while he was employed there and also claimed that Ray had tried to kill him. Police were initially skeptical of the claims, but after checking Ray's criminal record, they decided to investigate further. In October of 1989, they visited the Copeland farm with a search warrant, dozens of officers, and a team of bloodhounds. After a week-long search on the Copeland property was eventually initiated, in which three bodies, a quilt made of the clothing of the victims, were discovered. Authorities then found a twenty-two caliber rifle inside the home, which later tested positive to be the same weapon used on the murders. Police also found the quilt that we talked about, where Fag Copeland had stitched out of the dead men's clothing. The following week, investigators searched another barn purchased by Ray and found two more bodies. Authorities then found a register filled with the names of transient farmhands who had worked for the Copelands, and 12 of the names, including five of the victims found, had a crude X in Faye's handwriting next to them. Based on this, police suspected that the Copelands murdered seven additional drifters. The autopsy report determined the victims to be Paul Jason Cowart, John Freeman, Jimmy Dale Harvey, Wayne Warner, and Dennis Murphy, and they had all been shot in the back of the head at close range. Ray and Faye were then arrested. Prosecutors quickly offered a deal to Faye if she revealed to the investigators the locations of more bodies. Her only charge would be the conspiracy to commit murder, which would result in only a few months in jail for her cooperation. However, Faye seemed to cover for her husband, telling the prosecutors she was unaware of the nature of Ray's killings. It became clear that Ray killed his employees out of the pursuit of money, but Faye's actions were initially questioned. 
And on November 1st, 1999, sorry, 1990, the 69-year-old Faye Copeland went to trial first. According to the articles in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, her defense mounted a picture of her as a dutiful wife and a mother who had endured beatings and general ill treatment from her husband. However, the jury convicted her of four counts of murder and one count of manslaughter. She was given four death sentences for the murders and life without parole for the manslaughter. As Faye was sentenced to death by lethal injection, she sobbed uncontrollably. And when Ray Copeland was told about the verdict on his wife, his reply reportedly was, Well, those things happen to some, you know. He apparently never asked about Faye again after that. After Faye was sentenced to death, Ray followed suit shortly thereafter. Though Ray died of natural causes on October 19, 1993, and his body was cremated, Faye's attorneys appealed her conviction, contending that the jury had not been allowed to hear evidence that Ray had abused her for years. On August 6, 1999, Judge Ortiz Smith overturned the death sentence, but let those convictions stand and commuted her sentence to five consecutive terms of life without parole. On August 10, 2002, Faye suffered a stroke that left her partially paralyzed and unable to speak. Weeks later, in September 2002, Governor Bob Holden authorized medical parole for Faye, fulfilling her one wish that she not die in prison. She was paroled to a nursing home in her hometown of Clitholth, Missouri, where she died of natural causes at 82. And that is the story of... Faye and Ray Copeland. So, when were they arrested and how long were they in prison before their trial? So, they were arrested in 1989 is when their farm was searched. Faye's okay. trial was in 1990 and Ray's trial, I believe, was at the end of 1990 into 91. Ray died in 99, and Faye died in 2002. Okay. Well, how long did they have that farm? They had that, so they were in their 60s and 70s when they were arrested. Yeah, but how long did they start, like, be doing this for? Because, like, they were born roughly in that Great Depression era, so, like, 30s and whatnot. But still. Yeah, so I believe they were at this farm for about 10 years. I can double check that here. Because um, he went to jail after the vagrant, first vagrant forgery in the summer of 66. Okay. And I know that he'd been in jail for almost... A total of 10 years before this. Yeah. So, yeah, I believe they had it for actually more closer to 20 years. Wow. Yeah. So, 12 victims over that time. And the whole, like, they hire this person and I guess they pretty much just feed and board this guy and he gets some pay. And they end up using his stuff to buy livestock. And then 
sell it without him getting any sort of money or having to pay for it, period. So hmm. what they would do for the guys that died, they you needed a post office box for like a permanent address to open up a bank account. They'd have then them fill out the checks to buy the cattle from their bank account like with Ray saying that he'll transfer the money over or, you know, roughly the equivalent of that. And then after they bought the cattle and Ray would have the cattle, Ray would then kill the hitchhiker or, um, and they would repeat the process after that. So they would actually be working on the farm for a couple of months prior, gaining trust, like trusting Ray and Faye uh, and all like that. Like a long con type thing. Yeah, before uh. he would execute them. Okay, so he's like partially tricking the people as well that he would kill, as well as the people he would get the, the cattle, cattle from. from. Yeah, and um, I read somewhere also that he would like do one or two successful sales like doing this before he would kill the farmhand okay because i was wondering if it was just like it's a new guy almost every year so how many times was he getting this kind of money like was it just like enough so he wouldn't be super rich and stuff like that and people wouldn't suspect yeah enough Uh, to fly under the radar but still you know come out on top yeah yeah weird yeah, so the, that is the Copelands. They were also the oldest couple and oldest people sentenced to death. Yeah. For their crimes. I want to say there's like either TV shows or a, like a movie with like an old couple that just has bodies buried under their house. And I wonder if these people might have inspired a lot of that. Yeah, so Criminal Minds actually did an episode based off this couple. I knew it. Yeah. I saw that it just had to be something like that. Ooh. Yeah, and I, I think there's one other one that did it as well, and I'm not sure off the top of my head what it is, but yeah, no, this couple is very prominent in crimes like that, and there's a couple more couples that copycatted them after this. Ooh. Hmm. Okay. Okay, so they were pioneers in a weird situation. I wouldn't say that they're to be glorified for that, but I don't know. I I don't remember that episode of Criminal Minds particularly, but I like the show, so it must have been at least pretty good. Yeah. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Any other questions on this couple, or do you want to move to the next one? Uh, let's, let's move to the next one, because the questions will only get more off-topic and weirder from there. Okay. Alright, so this next couple is named Martha Beck and Raymond Fernandez. Beck was born Martha Julie Seabrook in Milton, Florida in 1920. She was the youngest child of William Seabrook, a submissive man who abandoned his family when she was 10 years old, and a dominant mother. As a child, she was shy and overweight, which was attributed to an unspecific Langlier problem and was bullied by other children. She developed sexually and became interested in boys when she was apparently only nine years old. This made her mother paranoid about leaving her alone with men, which contributed to her loneliness and sexual desire. 
At her trial, Beck claimed that she was raped once by her brother, but that her mother had blamed her and beat her for it. She then ran away from her home as a teenager, but returned later. In 1942, she graduated as a nurse from Pensacola, but had trouble finding work due to her parents. After working in a funeral home, washing and preparing the bodies for burial, she became depressed and moved to California, where she was then hired in a hospital. Meanwhile, she engaged in casual sex with men that she met at bus stops. When she became pregnant, she asked the father to marry her, but he refused and committed suicide. Beck suffered a nervous collapse and returned to Pensacola, where she claimed that she had married a serviceman who was killed in action in the Pacific. Beck was hired in the same Pensacola hospital where she gave birth to her first child, but she was fired for scandalous behavior on May 31st, 1944. So this article kind of went into her background and her motivations behind her crimes, like by going into her background. Yeah. If you haven't picked that up already. Yeah, but it's just like... Like she's messed up. Yeah, but I feel like part of that was a lot due to upbringing. Yeah. Yeah. Still kind of kind of weird, but I wouldn't say it's impossible or extremely rare for something like that to happen either. Yeah, no. But um anyway, let's just move right <laughs> along to this. All right. All right. So on December 13th, she married a bus driver, Alfred Beck, but she filed for divorce after only six months and while being pregnant with a second child. On February 15th, 1946, she began working at a residence for disabled children and was promoted to director in the fall. Despite the professional success, she also became an alcoholic and a compulsive consumer of romantic novels and films. In November, an acquaintance played a prank on her by writing to the New York Lonely Hearts Club on, in her name. So, with that, uh, go ahead. What what's the lone like the Lonely Hearts Club? What is? I, I, it sounds like it's from like a music album. What is that? So this is where people would write in like a profile and like tell them about themselves what they're looking for and like the opposite sex and then this club would set them up on dates oh or give them potential suitors so like online dating before online dating yeah and like this was very common in like newspapers like in the wanted ads like early on like people would just write in saying like like single female looking for male farmer or something for a relationship Uh, and like that was just very common before the internet was a thing okay so like the time where like the phrase loves long walks on the beach it that probably would be the kind of thing it comes from yeah like yeah it's yeah it's basically yeah Hmm. it's probably good we don't do that anymore nobody reads the newspaper these days Yep, pretty much. <laughs> at least, at least our generation really doesn't. No, if we do, it's online anyway. Yeah, paperless, save the environment. But you were saying. Uh, so we're leaving Beck off with her friend writing into the Lonely Hearts Club on her behalf, 
And now we're going to move to Raymond Fernandez. Fernandez was born in Hawaii in 1914. His parents were Spanish immigrants who later moved to Fairfield, Connecticut. His father, a handyman, always treated him harshly for unknown reasons and refused to school Fernandez and would force him to do the most demeaning work. When he was 16, Fernandez and two other boys stole two chickens. The other families paid bail, but Fernandez's father refused, and he was imprisoned for two months. Afterward, the family moved to southern Spain, where his father became mayor of Orgavia, a small town in the Granda Providence. At age 20, Fernandez moved to Gibraltar, where he worked as an ice cream vendor, and he gathered intelligence for British during World War II. At one point, he also married a Spanish woman in Carson Can. In Carnacan? I'm so sorry about the pronunciations. And had four children with her. I don't know how to say how confused I am that there was an ice cream man who was a spy during World War II. I know. It's pretty cool. <laughs> That alone could be... I, I kind of want that to be a TV show. <laughs> I, I feel like it would be a good one. But yeah, he gathered intelligence during World, Sal- World War II for the Britons. Selling ice cream. Yeah. One, oh, that is, that is beautiful. I, that, I'm going to be writing that high for a while. That's fantastic. <laughs> well, good. Hold on to that. Cause he, that. It's about to get creepy, I know. But that's just a lovely thought. <laughs> Well, that's the last time, like, you really think highly of him, so. Oh. Um, In December 1945, Fernandez boarded a ship to the U.S. without his family. While sailing near Caraco, a steel hatch fell on him, and he had multiple skull fractures. The accident changed his personality dramatically, and he became impulsive, erratic, and addicted to sex. Apparently, everyone's just addicted to sex from this article, so... Sorry, guys, but this is just how it was written and where I got most of my notes from. And, like, the head trauma thing, that's the change in personality. That sounds like common problems to, like, frontal lobe damage. Like, there's this guy that had the bar that goes through it, and he was a different person after that. Yep, it's the same exact thing, frontal lobe damage. Fantastic. Yep. So, again, like, complete personality flip from what he was. Makes sense. Yep. Shortly after his discharge from the hospital in 1946, he was arrested in Mobile, Alabama, and charged with robbery for trying to pass stolen clothing through customs. Fernandez pled guilty to the charge, but claimed that he could not resist his actions and that he didn't know why he did them. He was sentenced to one year and was in prison in Tallahassee, Florida, where his cellmate converted him to belief in voodoo, hypnotism, and black magic. In December 1946, he moved with relatives in New York City and joined a local Lonely Hearts club called the Mother Diane's Friendly Club. He wrote to women in the club with great success. In 1947, Fernandez met Lucille Thompson, a divorced cook who run a New York City boarding house with her mother. After becoming her tenant, the two started a relationship and they left for a vacation in Spain in October. They visited Madrid, Granda, Malagala, and La Lina de la Concepcion, or Capricorn. I, again, I am so sorry. I'm 
doing terrible on the pronunciations today. And you took Spanish more than I did. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, anyways, it was on the Gibraltar border where Fernandez and Explicity introduced his lover to his wife and children. So he's like, girlfriend, meet wife, and four kids. I don't think it went over that well. That sounds like just a super awkward moment. I feel like it, yeah. Huh. How did that play out? We don't ever know. And I'm like, this is like the most dramatic meeting ever. And there's nothing covered on it. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I will imagine it. Yeah. So, (laughs) on November 7th, Thompson argued with Fernandez, probably about this meeting, and threatened to return to the U.S. alone. The next morning, she was found dead in her hotel room, and the cause was identified as a heart attack triggered by gastroenteritis. Fernandez returned and showed Thompson's mother a forged will that named him Thompson's only heir. Fernandez then read Beck's letters at the Lonely Hearts Club and wrote back, telling her that he intended to visit shortly before Christmas. So, by this time, Fernandez is already linked to a death, and he just met Beck through the Lonely Hearts Club. So, did did she ever leave Spain, or was that still in Spain? Uh, he just got the letters while he was in Spain. He was going to return to New York to meet her. Okay, so he... How do you fake a heart attack through that? Huh. I'm not really sure, besides, like, just a couple different types of poisons, but I don't know if he actually killed her or if it was an actual heart attack. Well, I mean, she did meet an entire family she didn't expect to meet. Yeah, I mean, she did have a lot of stress going on. So it could have been not murder. Yeah. Mm. Anyways. And different country. Hard to track records that way. Yeah. No. (laughs) Anyways, on to Beck and uh, Fernandez's meeting. So after only two days being together, Fernandez realized that Beck was a lot poorer than the letter claimed and returned to New York after making some excuse. Beck wrote several romantic letters to Fernandez, to which she replied that she misinterpreted him and that they should not meet again. In response, Beck wrote Fernandez that she was going to kill herself with an oven. The letter had the desired effect and Fernandez invited Beck back to New York. The residence that she was working at conceded Beck to a two-week leave. She later found out that she had been fired without explanation. So... Beck, like, took a vacation from work to go see Fernandez, but was fired during that vacation. Hmm. That seems kind of shady on the business part. Yeah. So she's not doing too hot. Mm-mm. On January 18th, 1948, Beck surprised Fernandez by ringing the boarding house's door with her two children. When Fernandez said he could not have the children in the house, she had sent them to her mother and threw Thompson's mother out. I believe, of the residence that now Fernandez has owned, the boarding house. Okay. So. Fernandez's old girlfriend's mother that Fernandez now had the boarding house because Thompson, his old girlfriend, died. 
Yeah. Huh. So, in a last attempt to make her leave, Fernandez confessed that he was a con artist and that his life was based on ripping off women from the Lonely Hearts Club. However, Beck chose to stay and become his accomplice. Eventually, she abandoned her children at the Salvation Army. And on February 28th, Fernandez drove to Fairfax, Virginia, where he married a retired schoolteacher, Esther Hennen, and brought her to New York. Beck refused to leave Fernandez alone and accompanied him for the trip, forcing him to introduce her as his sister-in-law. Hayne subsequently got in several arguments with Fernandez about Beck, who wanted her to write his insurance policies and retire pension under his name as well. So, Fernandez, who just married the school teacher, basically wanted her to write and give everything to him in his name, and she wasn't really happy with that or with Beck being at their house. Yeah. It's just like they're married, technically, now. So, I think legally, though, would probably go to him anyway, but without it being said, then some of it could go to whoever she does name. So, I mean, I get why she's upset. That's just like, we we barely talked a whole lot, and we have another woman living with us. Yeah, I'm not okay with that. Yeah. So, after hearing of Thompson's death from other tenants... So Fernandez's old girlfriend, she left the city and began proceedings to recover her car and the $300 that Fernandez had taken from her. Simultaneously pressured by a paternity claim from a New York woman, Fernandez and Beck sold the house and traveled to Green Forest, Arkansas, where they met yet another member of the club, Myrtle Young. Fernandez and Young married in Cook County, Illinois on August 14th, and the trio traveled to a modest rooming house in Chicago for the honeymoon. After just three days, an argument erupted between Fernandez's unwillingness to consummate and Young threatened to leave if Fernandez's in-law didn't. Young ingested or was forced to ingest a jar of bur- barbiturates and was placed on a bus to Arkansas after Fernandez and Bo- Beck took the $4,000 from her. During the trip, Young suffered a brain hemorrhage and died at a hospital. So, basically, they just force-fed her a bunch of drugs, sent her on a bus, and was like, see ya, and took all her money. And like a forced overdose type thing, and then just go away. Yep. That's... Ah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Ah. Uh. So they're kind of shady people. Yeah. So Oof. around Christmas time, Fernandez wrote to a pious widow from Albania, or Albany, New York, Janet Fay, claiming that his name was Charles Martin and that he shared her religious beliefs. On January 1st, Fernandez and Beck went back to Fay's house where he introduced Beck as his sister and claimed that they had both lost their wallets. So, just to clarify, this is a completely different Faye from the last story. She's a widow in Albany, New York, and they just went to her house after seeing the ad saying that they had lost their wallets. Faye doesn't know either of them. Yeah. 
And like he never wrote to her, aside from just saying that I also believe the same beliefs as you. Right? Yes. Okay. And just happened to bring his sister along with. Yep. Hmm. So the next day, Faye accepted Fernandez's marriage proposal and withdrew $2,500 from her account. And the three left for an apartment in Long Island. And Faye was convinced to withdraw $3,500 more. As they were still not married, Faye slept with Beck and asked her several questions about Charles's childhood, which she refused to answer. Faye became angry and told Beck that she would not live with the couple after they were married. When Faye went to talk to her fiancé, Beck then ran after her and struck her fatally with a hammer. Afterward, they bought a large chest to put the body in and buried it in cement inside the basement of a rented house in Queens. So, Faye told Beck that Beck couldn't live with them after they were married, and Beck then killed her with a hammer. Okay. I'm more, like, I'm guessing the house in Queens wasn't where they were living. No, it was just a rented house. How did they get in there and get her in the concrete with the chest? Because that's... Ah. This is before the internet. Like, they could rent under just fake names. Yeah, but they also weren't living there. So how did they just walk in with a chest and suddenly they walked out without a chest, never to return? They rented it under fake names. (sighs) Still a chest. The chest is the problem. Yeah. Hmm. So... Go on. Well, like, clothes were kept in chests during this time. Like, it was common to have chests around. Okay, that's fair. Yeah. (laughs) So, the same day of the murder, Fernandez received a letter from Delphine Downing, a young widow in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who had a two-year-old daughter, Raynell. This time, Beck was introduced again as Fernandez's sister-in-law, and he slept several times with Downing while Beck could barely hide her jealousy. On February 27th, Beck offered Downing some pills that she claimed were abortificants, uh, like Plan B, but were actually sleeping pills. When she fell unconscious, they rolled the sheet around her head and Fernandez shot her with her ex-husband's revolver. Downing was then buried in cement inside the house's basement. Over the next two days, they considered different fates for Downing's daughter. Keeping her was not an option because she rejected them and refused to eat, and they thought that leaving her in an orphanage would raise suspicions. Finally, Fernandez told Beck to kill the child, and she drowned her in a basin. That was really dark. I'm sorry, guys. After they buried her with her mother the same day, the two concerned neighbors rang the door. Fernandez and Beck talked to them and then went to the movies. Upon their return, they were arrested by the police. So, good neighbors. If you see something, say something. Oh, still. Really, really dark, and I'm sorry. I just sort of tried to go through that as fast as I could. Yeah, but, like, doing all that and then just going to the movies. Like, nothing ever happened. Yeah. Ha. Yeah. Ha. Yeah. Okay. So they're like very guilty 
people that like don't feel any remorse and uh yeah they're just terrible terrible people um so fernandez and beck made full confessions that differed in some details the buried bodies were then exhumed and the spanish police were alerted to and reopened to the 1947 case of murder because michigan had abolished the death penalty in the 19th century the state pressed no charges and extradited the couple to New York, where each faced one charge of first-degree murder for the death of Janet Fay. In June, they declared themselves not guilty by reason of insanity, but after a 44-day trial, they were found guilty and were sentenced to die in the electric chair. So they both had the trial both together and were sentenced together. While in jail, Fernandez told the doctors that he had a sincere affection and a great consideration for Beck, but he was unsure of loving her. The doctors told Beck that Fernandez never loved her and that he was infected with syphilis, which crushed Beck. However, two hours before their execution on March 8, 1951, Fernandez sent her a message that read, I would like to yell to the world the love I feel for you. This contented Beck, who told the nurse that she was happy to die knowing that Fernandez loved her. While in custody, Beck also exhorted police to clamp down on the Lonely Hearts Club, claiming that they were all frauds. Coincidentally or not, Mother Diane's friendly club was closed under charges of fraud, but reopened immediately after with a different name and the same fees of $5 per ad. The case of Raymond Fernandez and Martha Beck inspired several later movies like The Honeymoon Killers in 1970, Deep Crimson in 1996, Lonely Hearts in 2006, and Alleluia in 2014. Beck's final statement was, What doesn't matter who is to blame? My story is a love story, but only those tortured with love can understand what I mean. I was pictured as a fat, unfeeling woman. I am not unfeeling, stupid, or moronic. In the history of the world, how many crimes have been attributed to love? Her remains were transported back to her hometown, where she rests in an unmarked grave. And at the time of her death, her mom, ex-husband, Alfred Beck, her two children, one brother, and three sisters were all still alive. Wow. Yeah, because okay. she was only 31 when she died. Yeah, but... Oof. Yeah. That is a lot. I'd, like, that escalated pretty, pretty consistently. Like, from a young age to the running away and then moving and moving back and then all these different things. Yeah. And her jealousy, murder, and... Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Oof, oof, oof. Oof. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you were right. I don't feel nearly as happy about the guy who was a spy and an ice cream salesman. I know. He turned out to be kind of a, a really bad person, but... Yeah. Huh. After his injury, of course. Yeah. I'm a little concerned slash impressed... And how quickly these women just decided to give him money right out the bat. He was probably very charming and convincing, a lot like H.H. H. Holmes. Hmm. 
Probably. I mean, Holmes had a same, like, similar scheme of conning women from Lonely Hearts yeah. Club. It was just a, a bit, like, 20 years earlier. Yeah. Still, though, that's just... Who... Yeah. Creepy. Very. Makes sense there's so many movies on that. Yeah. Well, do you have anything else, John John? Any questions? I mean, we covered two serial killer couples. I wouldn't say there's many questions. I'm, I'm kind of shook. So, yeesh. Yeah. And I can edit this out if, I mean, she hasn't announced it yet or whatnot. But this episode is dedicated to Gabby Griffith, who recently got engaged. So congratulations, Gabby. Congratulations, Gabby. It's, I am so proud that he forced you into the middle of the woods and told you right away while you still couldn't tell anybody for long periods of time. Must have been, must have been just wonderful for him. <laughs> well, you know, Gabby, she would live to her namesake and just tell everyone right away. Mm -hmm. But she couldn't. Oh, oh I, I, that's just wonderful. I feel... Good move by his part. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so anyways, congratulations. I hope you liked this episode. <laughs> Hooray. Hooray. And with that, John John, do you want to take us out? Sure. So if you haven't already, make sure you do hit that subscribe. Rate this five stars if you're as disturbed as I am, or even if you're not, so that more people can possibly be dis just disturbed as well. If you want to suggest topics to us or maybe just give comments, say hi or whatnot, you can do so in a variety of ways. You can either email us at vileadvice at gmail.com, no ampersand, just the words, and let us know also on Facebook and Instagram at Podcast, or just give us a tweet, see if you do, like... I, I don't know about that, but yeah, you can send us a tweet at Vice. no ampersands in any of these things, or you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Vice. and now you can only, well, I, I said that part wrong. Now you guys can get all the bonus content for the $1 tier, which is really, really good. So thank you guys so much for supporting us. We really appreciate it. But if you feel like giving us more, why not? We enjoy it. You get to see all these wonderful contacts. And you get first dibs on a lot of merch. Once we have merch. <laughs> <laughs> um, you do get a t-shirt now at the $5 level and above. So that's kind of cool. Hooray, t-shirts. Hooray. So yeah, we really, really appreciate it. And thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys so much. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Violin Vice. Cover art is by Audie Griffith. Music by Annabelle Rivack. If you want to help support the show, please visit patreon.com slash Vice. Or give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to. This helps us move up the charts and also helps keep the spooky stories coming. Thank you. Thank you.